Um, we have a great night. We have vision night tonight. Um, if you are, if you ever, we have changed the date several times. In fact, the initial date we had for that event was Super Bowl Sunday. So we have moved it several times to try and accommodate people and realizing we are always going to upset some. We had people, e even after we've been talking about it, we had people emailing us saying, did you know it's the Oscars? And we're like, we know. But we do also want to let you know um, it, is, it is going to be a great night. It is not going to take forever. This is not a night that goes on and on and on forever and ever. It's a night where we go, we'll feed you guys about five or so. People will start showing up. We'll have an early dinner. We'll be out of here by seven. Record the Oscars for the gap that you miss. Come home, fast forward through the commercials, and judge everybody's horrible appearance or whatever else they chose to wear as much as you want, as fast as you can, and catch up. All right, it's going to be a great night. For those of you who want to know kind of this is your home church, you want, kind of want to know what else is happening, what's going on, what God's doing in the next year or so or the next couple months, we're going to fill you in on some of those things. But it is going to be a great night. You do not want to miss it. Um, if you're a person who is a volunteer, who's been connected to our church for a while, great, come. If you're a person who just wants a free meal or you need to escape an Oscar party you don't want to be at, come. All right, we want to make sure you're, you're able to be here. That's what's going on. I'm really excited about that. Um, it's going to be great. Now, uh, let's see. If you're new with us, um, I just want to say, just really quickly, I am so glad that you're here. There is a lot of places you could be on a Sunday morning. I'm glad that you chose to be with us. Um, if you've never been here with us before, what we say often around here is that um, we are a group of people who are figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus. We are absolutely convinced of a couple things in that. One of them is that we do not have all the answers about what that looks like. Um, and number two is that none of us does that perfectly. If you are a person who is trying to figure out what it looks like or even curious about what it might look like to follow Jesus and the secondary command Jesus has about loving other people, if you're curious about that, want to know more about that, and you want a journey with people who don't have their act together, or maybe they have their act together, but that's it, then we're so glad you're here. We are trying to figure that out together. So welcome. Um, let's, uh, let's get into this series. We are in this, this fifth week of the series. And what we've been saying is that as we talk about the art of relationships, there is really, it's more art, far more art than it is science. In fact, as we try to apply scientific sort of formulas to our relationships, more often than not, we end up kind of messing them up. When we said about it and being an art, in fact, the first week we said it's an art. In fact, it's almost more like a dance. That sometimes everybody's moving to the same music and dancing in the same direction. And other times we're stepping on each other's toes and we're kicking each other in the shins. And we're wondering why relationships are so hard. Because they are not science. They are, in fact, art and dance. And throughout the series, we've talked so much about this. In fact, the beginning of the series, in fact, every single message in the series has had this verse. As the early church is trying to figure out how everybody's supposed to get along, all these people from different backgrounds and lifestyles, people with different religious backgrounds and self, different races, genders, all socioeconomic status, all these people who never would have associated together are now thrown together because they follow Jesus. The question is, how are we supposed to keep everybody getting along? And the Apostle Paul will say this. He'll say to the early church, he'll say, look, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The guiding ethic for the community of people who follow Jesus has to be that we put each other first. That we love each other as if we want to be loved. That's what Paul says. Like there's lots of ways to consider ways in which we would do that. But one of the things I want to talk about today are two questions that this verse brings up that we haven't yet dealt with. That are really critical. And there are two questions that we have to actually address that are kind of uncomfortable. In fact, I would say this. Some of you will hear today's message and you'll go, that was great. That was that was dead on. That was great. Some of you will be like, I've heard it before and that's not a big deal. And others of you will be like, wow, I got a little uncomfortable there for a little bit. Now I realize there's lots of reasons you could get uncomfortable in church. And I'm, I'm usually the cause of a lot of those. But, but I just want you to know, we're going to wrestle with some big questions that are a part of that, that very idea of loving 
our neighbor as ourself. And so we'll get into that. It will be really cool. It will be a little bit maybe bold. We'll see how that kind of goes. Um, but it's going to be a great day. I'm really excited about that. In fact, I, you know, I, I usually don't sleep very well on Saturday night. Um, and I did, really did not sleep at all last night. I was waking up a bunch thinking about today. I'm very excited about it. So let's pray. We'll jump into today's message. Jesus, we are, uh, we're grateful to gather here. We're grateful that we, this is a place where we can explore challenging things. In a place where we don't have to have all the answers. And Father, today as we talk about this, um, to the, today's message, might you identify in us the experience we've had in our past. In which we have been an outsider or we've been unwelcome. Might you, Father, help us to connect with the idea that it is you who has welcomed us. Father, the scriptures say over and over again that we were once far from you and that you came to us to bring us close to you. Might we connect with the idea, Father, that there is no place we could go so far from you that you would not come to receive us? So, Father, for just a moment, as we've already kind of done briefly in the in this service this morning, we've paused. Would you just give us a sense that there is no distance, Father? Would you communicate it to us however you would? No distance we could go to where you would not come to find us. Would you speak to us now in some stillness and silence? Today, Father, would you overwhelm us with the fullness of your welcome, of your embrace, as we consider your word today, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, in your bulletin, you got on the back of that thing is a little outline. You can follow along there if you would like to. If you um, brought your own Bible or you want to follow along on your own phone or whatever else you might have brought to kind of help you stay kind of attuned to what's going on, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus chapter 19. Now, um, some of you who grew up in the church know that's the one, there's like a couple parts of the Bible that you kind of have to like speed read through because they're really not all that exciting. Leviticus definitely counts as one of those. Um, it is, if you've never been in church before, it's just, there's no, there's no like, there's no poetry in it. There's no high drama. There's no great epic stories. There's no real great biblical heroes that come out of the book of Leviticus. It's a lot of like, do this and you probably shouldn't do that and don't do that. And make sure you, and when you kill a ram, do it this way and sprinkle the blood here. It's like, oh gosh, it's not real fun stuff. But I, my hope today is not only will we wrestle with some big questions, that in some small way, those of you who grew up in the church, we might be able to redeem a little bit of the book of Leviticus. Just maybe. We'll see. All right? Now. This week I was, um, I was watching a, a show with my kids where um, we're, we're together, we're all watching a show on the couch and we're watching a show, I, I think this is what it was called and I, because it was just too funny, it was called The United Sharks of America. And it was, it was, a, it was, a, a, it was on the National Geographic channel, it was a show about how uh, sharks, uh, they were kind of trying, the, the, the point was to try to dispel some of the myths about shark attacks as well as trying to figure out what are some of the correlations and causations for which there are actual shark attacks? And so they did every, all their research, all these scientists who are, you know, underwater and doing stuff, they're all trying to figure out what exactly are the, like, major connections between all these attacks that happen. And it every, by the way, at every single shot of the screen on the bottom would always be the statistical anomaly for being bitten by a shark, you know, always, which all of us go, yeah, sure. You know, because it's like you have more likelihood of dying from bees or being struck by lightning 19 times or whatever. And you're like, okay, but still, right? And they're sh they, here's what they're doing. They're discovering which, which things they know have shown to be somehow connected to shark attacks. So it's like the color yellow, evidently, is a color that sharks are prone to investigate. So those of you who are thinking about buying a new suit for, you know, going out at spring break or whatever else is you're doing, don't choose yellow, evidently, okay? 
There's also, they said that splashing is obviously something that attracts sharks, shiny objects. There was a, a, a scientist, under the water, marine biologist, who's, you know, got the full scuba gear with yellow fins on trying to attract the shark, and she's waving the Mardi Gras beads. Like, the imagery there is just like, this is just kind of a little bit ironic. She's waving these, and, and the sharks are coming around. And then there's this, that they said, you know, hey, don't, don't swim at dawn and at dusk or whatever. Now, during the show, no, none of the scientists were attacked. But my kids and I are watching the show. And it's, I'm not exaggerating some of the things that they saw. So they're, they're totally in the dark of the ocean. There are, there's a guy or someone filming these scientists at work trying to provoke sharks. Some of the sharks, it turns out, they just come up to you and they just bump into you. And they can tell based on their, like, electrical, sensory, whatever thing they got in their nose. They can tell whether or not you're food. But the biggest sharks, the man-eating sharks, the only way they can tell if you're real, the way they investigate is if they bite you. There's, like, no, cur there's no curious moment of, like, I wonder. It's just, like, nope. Like, that's all that they got. Not exaggerating, there's this one woman who's like looking at the sharks, waving the beads and, you know, trying to make noise and get all these sharks to come. And a shark literally, as she's standing on the ocean floor, swims between her legs underneath her. And she doesn't realize it until it's right there. There's, a, there's a, a camera person watching these people and there's sharks swimming right behind them, like bumping them into the head. They don't see them at all. They're coming, they're just these beasts coming out of the darkness. And again, always. You're never going to get attacked by a shark. It'll never happen. Don't worry. It'll never, ever happen. And we look at this, and my kids and I are yelling at the TV like it's a horror movie. <laughs> Turn around. Turn around. Punch it. Punch. Oh, my gosh. You know, and the whole time we're screaming at the television. And they keep, they keep telling us it's never going to happen, and we keep running into the same phrase over and over again. Yeah, but I've got to tell you, those scientists look pretty stupid to me. These are people with multiple advanced degrees in marine biology who are underwater trying to provoke sharks to see what actually might make them attack them. Again, this will never happen. You're more likely to get struck by whatever, lightning. You're more likely to have a crater land on your house or what, all these kind of, I mean a crater, doesn't make sense. A meteorite land on your house and form a crater. <laughs> a crater will land on your house. Think about that for a second. Deep thought for the day. Okay, now, and the whole time we're looking at it going, yeah, but if you lost a leg from a shark... The statistics no longer. I mean, yeah, but. We're yelling at the television. Yeah, but I don't know. I think for a lot of us, we have a tendency at times, and we're never proud of this, but we have a tendency to actually apply the same kind of thinking to people. There are people for whom we look at and we go, yeah, I'm not really, you know, they, they, there's not really a statistical chance that they're going to hurt me, but... I mean, I know that there's these other people who I don't know, and they're not part of my, my relationships, but what, I mean, yeah, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. When we talk about the art of relationships, we've spent all of our time, appropriately speaking, about all of our relationships with people we already have. And what I want us to consider is what do we do with the relationships with people we don't yet have? Because primarily our response to people we don't, with relationships people we don't yet have, at least starts in some level with the idea of fear. That's where we start. And we go, well, I don't know them, and they're probably not going to, but yeah, but. So the question for us, at least at one level, is what are we supposed to do with people we don't know? Paul, the apostle, writing to the early church, has a sense about Here's what it means for us to get along with each other as an internal group, people who are part of us, who follow Jesus, whatever that might look like as he's speaking to this group of people who belong to Jesus. 
But what do we do with people that aren't yet part of us? That we may never, what do we do with those people? Most of us have an, have an experience in which we say, I don't know them, and they're probably not dangerous, but. Now, Jesus has some incredibly challenging things to say about this idea. There are things that make us uncomfortable. There are things that make us go, well, yeah, but. Remember, we start at least at some level with this, this what Jesus says. Paul will quote Jesus who quotes the, the book of Leviticus, which is where we'll be today, in which he says the entire law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. But that prompts two really important questions for us. Really critical questions. The first one is this. What does it mean to love? I mean, what really, when we talk about love, what is that? We live in a world that is about tolerance, that is trying to get people to be more tolerant. The ethic in the Bible is not just simply, what does it mean? It's not just simply tolerate your neighbor, it's love. What does that mean? The second question is, who is my neighbor? What constitutes a person for whom I have to ex- extend this kind of love? Because we, we have a hard time expressing love to the people that are already in our lives. What about those people we don't know who, what does it mean to love, and who is my neighbor? These are big questions. Most of us have some level of fear about people we don't know. And some of that's really well-founded. We just have to keep ourselves safe. But there's also another part of that. What does it mean? Um, now, like I told you, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus. And I told you it is not a super fun, hilarious there's no great, it's not like great poetry. People don't look to the book of Leviticus as inspiration for a lot of stuff. The book the, in Hebrew, the book of Leviticus is literally referred to, it translates as, and the Lord called. And when it, whenever God calls anybody, he's calling people to something. More often than not, he's calling people to one particular kind of thing. And when the book of Leviticus is read or understood to be read, it's read primarily with the understanding about one idea in which God's people are called out to be unique among the whole world. The word describing this kind of called out uniqueness that you see throughout the Bible is this word right here, holiness. Now, the book of Leviticus, this really difficult book, pertains a lot to a group of people called the Levites. That's literally what it means in sort of the Latin translation is it means pertaining to the Levites, which is a group of people who take care of the temple. But the whole book is written for all of God's people to live in holiness, a uniqueness. The literal meaning of the word holiness means to be set apart, to be different. So you have all these rules throughout the Bible that, that show up in the book of Leviticus. Here's how it starts. Look, here's, the, or here's how chapter 19 starts anyway. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel, not just this particular class of people who are supposed to be holy, but everybody, and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be set apart, be unique among all the ancient peoples of the world. Here's some things that you'll read. That you might, if you ever want to read the super fascinating book of Leviticus, you should read it. Here's what you'll find. You'll see things like this. My people should not sacrifice their children to the other gods. Like, don't kill your firstborn children to have, like, a great crop. Don't do that. Which we go, that's a good one. We like that one. Probably good. This is a common practice in the ancient world. People would do this. Then there would be things like this. Don't worship other gods. We get that. Those other gods are empty gods who cannot protect you, who don't care for you. They're, they're not even, they have no power. Don't worship those gods. Only worship me. It makes sense. And then you get things like this. Don't blend two fabrics together. And you're like, what? And then it says things like, you know, don't cut the hair on the sides of your beard. And you're like, mm, okay, I don't really get what that has to do with anything. And here's all of it has to do with God's people being unique. Now, just really quickly, 
there are practices, you would say, there are no practices I have in my life that don't have a really good explanation. Everything I do, everything I kind of got, it has a good explanation. There's a reason why I do that. There's a good natural cause and effect thing. I'm not a part of any rituals that aren't, you know, really, they don't have a, they don't have a clear basis in reality or basis in practicality. Are you sure? Because my guess is nearly everybody in this room has once had a birthday cake. And then we put candles in that birthday cake and we blow them out. There is absolutely no reason for us. There's no, there's no causational, there's no practical reason for us to light the candles and blow them out. If a person was to observe that who had never seen that custom, they would be like, that's really stupid. You just had someone breathe all over the cake everybody's going to eat. <laughs> and we go, but we have to do it. In fact, people, if you don't have a birthday cake with candles and you're a little kid, you're like, what happened to the birthday? I want, you can put a, you can put a candle in a burrito, and I gotta, but i got to blow something out because it's my birthday. <laughs> there are things that we do that we don't necessarily have explanation for, but that seem right or good as part of what, what we're about. In the ancient world, these things, if you talk to someone who is an Orthodox Jew, even to this day, what they'll say is, I don't know all of the reasons why we do some of these things. And there are many theories about these things, but I do them because somehow it's right or good or it connects me. It's not mine to question whether or not God has, what the reasons for these things. I just do them. God has called me to do these things. Now, one of the things, one of the most critical components that makes God's people unique in the ancient world is the thing that happens, it's a progression that you see in Leviticus chapter 19. And I want you to wrestle with this, and it's going to be a little bit challenging. We'll start in verse 9. It says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, which by the way, they don't have land yet. They're, they're in the desert wandering around. They're going to have land in a little bit. When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, you're going to have land. Don't go all the way to the edges and try to get everything you can for this reason. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I'm the Lord your God. Now there appears to be in this passage a kind of passive kindness to people who don't own your land. So you're going you're gonna to have your land and whatever your resources are, and apparently you're not supposed to go back over it a bunch of times to get everything you need. The, what, what God is enjoining his people to consider here, or at least commanding them to do, is this. You, he's, he will say, and always you have this in the Bible, which we talk about this a lot as a church community. God is always trying to get his people to understand that they have an abundance. And God's people, who are no different than us in this category, are always imagining that there's only a scarcity of things. So God will say, you have more than enough. Don't go back out and try to catch every little thing in your vineyard. Leave some of it for people who don't have money, who don't have rights to your land. Let them go through and have the extra stuff. There apparently is some kind of bias or sensitivity for people who cannot afford land or money. The Bible will say over and over again, in an act of rebellion against a kind of always trying to get and acquire and hoard things, the Bible, one of the most serious things God has for his people is that they would have something called a Sabbath. I'm not going to talk about Sabbath now. But a rest. The world says go and take and never stop and keep going and taking and never stopping. And God says, I'm going to provide for you everything you need. So rest. And there's going to be so much on your rest that people who, who cannot work, who cannot afford, there'll be enough for them too. Then you see, skipping down to verse 16. Again, noticing a progression here. Don't go about spreading slander among your people. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I'm the Lord. 
Now, by the way, everything, most of these commands end with the phrase, I am the Lord, which is kind of like the stamp, like, I'm your dad, so you don't get to do whatever it is. Like, if you ever try, your parents ever say that to you? Like, well, why can't I? Because I'm your father or I'm your mom, and that's, that's the answer. It's like, well, I guess that's the end of the discussion, right? Same thing here. Don't go slandering your own people, and don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. This is saying, this is an injunction against direct acts of violence or hate or whatever else it is against your own people. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Again, don't express any kind of violent act against someone who's your own person, which then begs the question, what about people who aren't my own people? Here's the rest of this verse. Maybe this looks familiar. But love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Now the implication in this would appear to be the only people for whom we ought to love as ourselves are our own people. And in the time of Jesus, there's a constant debate among people about what exactly, what exactly is this all about here. Most often people would say, a neighbor is someone who is a good or well-respected Jew, well-respected Israelite. And often you have this, well, what about those people? We just read a verse that said about those people who are foreigners and poor. What do we do about those people? Are we supposed to do anything with them? In fact, this verse most famously gets quoted by Jesus in, in Luke, well, not actually by Jesus, by another person in Luke chapter 10. I want to show you that. This is, there's this picture of Jesus who has a conversation with a guy who is an expert in the law. And here's what he says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, how do I participate in the kingdom kind of life, this God kind of life? Verse 26, what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? Now he's asking the guy, what's like the biggest way to sum up all of the commands in the Bible? This is a person, the expert in the law, by the way, is someone who, have, who would have known, probably by memory, the entire Hebrew Bible. And so he says to this person, what's like, the, what's like the, if you had to boil it down, what would you say? Here's what he says. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and he quotes Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's Leviticus, or sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 5. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But there's another thing going on here. There's one more thing. There's one more thing happening here I want you to capture. But he wanted to justify himself. This expert in the law is hiding something for which it's probably holding on to his own heart and he's trying to figure out is there a loophole for the loving of my neighbor but he wanted to justify himself so he asked Jesus and who is my neighbor the other way is that another way to sort of consider this question being asked here is this of all the people in the world who might be considered my neighbor, of all the people for whom this commandment might extend, who am I allowed to not love? I mean, there's lots of people, and Jesus, you seem like a reasonable guy. So who can I kind of go, you know, the, I know I might be supposed to kind of consider them a neighbor, but, you know, I mean, yeah, but they could be dangerous. Who am I allowed to not love? Who is a person that I can say, you know, I get it, but I don't really, I mean, there's some people I just don't have to love, right? Let's give you an example. I went to a college in Los Angeles. I'll tell you that much right there. There are two 
colleges in Los Angeles that hate, there's lots of colleges there, but two of these colleges do not get along. One of those colleges, one of those colleges, I have to be very careful when I say this, frequently has, is known, potentially, I'm not telling you which one this is, for people that drive convertible BMWs with white Gucci sunglasses. Okay? That's, there's another school for whom scholars and open-minded people who work hard in the community to see that goodness and life is advanced into the world. Now, I did not tell you to which one I was referring. Based on what you either know about me or the insight that God has given you about all things holy, you have understood something about the truth that I've said. For me, at a very... There are various times in the year in which I go, you know, are there some people I'm not allowed to love right about now? I drive maroon cars. I don't know. But I'm just saying there's, are there people for whom, on a more serious note, this person is saying, are there people for whom I'm not, I'm not obligated to love? Jesus will then do this, what he always does when people ask questions like this, which is he'll tell a story. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I'll just give you this. I'll summarize it really quickly. He tells a story. He goes, hey, let me tell you about a guy who went walking on the Jericho Road between Jerusalem and Jericho. He's walking between these two places. He's mugged. He's stripped naked, and he's left half dead, which is really important to catch. Then two people walk by him. One is a Levite who takes care of the temple, and the other is a priest who stands between the people and God, ministering to them. Both of those people walk by this man half dead. And both of those people are obligated by their duties to not touch a person who is dead. Because it will render them unclean for their responsibilities. Both of them walk by. Do not help the man. Then a person called a Samaritan walks by. A Samaritan, in the mind of this person, this expert in the law, among all people who are good, neighborly kinds of Jews, would have understood... That this is a person who, has, who is essentially a doubly evil person. In the ancient world, just to give you a sense, and I, we talk about this a lot, which helps to understand a lot of Jesus' ministry. The world is essentially divided into concentric circles of holiness. Both in people and in land and in things. So in land, the very center, the holiest place within the temple is the holiest place, the center of the whole universe, essentially. Radiating out from that is then the second most holy place, the temple itself, the courtyard, the city of Israel, and so on, and so, or the city of Jerusalem, into the land of Judea, Israel, and so on and so forth into the outer reaches of the world. The same thing is true with people. The high priest, the only person who can go into that most holy place once a year is the most holy person. Then other priests, then male Jews, then on so on and so forth as it radiates out to less and less clean or pure people. The Samaritans aren't even on the radar screen because they're so filthy, according to their, this idea. These are people who, hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years before Jesus, when an invading army came in and kicked everybody out, they all said, you know what, it's not that bad. We're just going to stick around and we're going to build families with these invading armies and we're going to have our bloodlines cross with these people. So they're already by nature of their birth deemed to be a traitor. Secondly, these are people who have alternative religious views that differ from the Jews that Jesus would have associated with. So these are people who are so far in both practice and in history 
from God's people. And Jesus says, this is a person who walks up, notices this person, and by his own great expense, nurses him back to health, makes sure he gets shelter and lodging, and says, if there's any other expenses, make sure you let me know, and I'll pay for it again when I come back again. Now, then Jesus turns to the man after telling the story, and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Now, I want you to see something. He cannot even say the word Samaritan. The answer is the Samaritan. And what he says is, the one who had mercy on him. Now Jesus will then follow that up by saying, go and do likewise. Now, with this often gets, this story often gets told like, hey, go be like a Samaritan, go help people. Which, that's true. But there's another layer Jesus is trying to get after here. He's asking does a person like a Samaritan even have the capacity to be neighborly? The most difficult thing ever for us when we talk about emulating someone else would be to emulate someone whom we hate, for whom we have no love. And Jesus says, you can just take the batteries out of that thing. That's why that thing keeps coming on. Are we good? But Jesus would say to this guy, you hate this person for whom you want to have no reason to love him. And that's the person I want you to emulate. Can you be, is it possible for this person to even be neighborly? Some of you have heard of the, um, the Museum of Tolerance. It's in L.A. And when you go into the Museum of Tolerance, you have two doors to choose from. Because part of what I want us to capture is all of us in this room, there are some people, at least to a degree, to whom we go, do I really have to love that person or that group with whom they're associated? Every one of us. Now, when you go to the Museum of Tolerance, there's an entrance. There's an entrance. And here's what the entrance looks like. On one door, it says prejudice. On the other, it says unprejudice. And you get to choose which door you want to go through. Now on this door it says think, now use the other door. Notice it says unprejudiced on top of it. Now this is a museum dedicated to Holocaust, you know, sort of commemoration, memorial. This is a conversation, it initiates a conversation about all kinds of hate and all that. It's really quite moving. But when you try to walk through the unprejudiced door, you find that it is always locked. Nobody gets to go through the museum entrance through the unprejudiced door. The expectation is that everybody is going to have to walk through their own prejudice, whatever degree that they might be aware of it or not, in order to deal with what's actually in their own heart. You cannot experience this exhibit believing first that you have no prejudice in your own heart. Jesus will say to this man, can you even fathom that there would be someone for whom you believe there's no good in them, that this person might actually have something to offer? Just for a moment, consider who that might be in your own life. Who are those people for whom you go, I know that the, I don't have any reasonable justification for explaining why I don't, but yeah, when we look at them and we go, yeah, but. 
I know that they're part of the whole, we're supposed to love each other and all that, but I, yeah, but I don't know. Isn't there a loophole, Jesus, for some of these people? To look at one another, to believe that they're capable of some kind of great good. I mean, this is like people with different customs and languages and lifestyle, all that stuff we go, are they? No, no, Jesus never endorses the belief system. He never endorses the past of the, the ancestors and their traitorous acts. He never says everything's cool, everything's the same. That's not what Jesus says. He just says, could you believe that someone else who you believe to be so far off the radar screen might actually be capable of some kind of good? Could they even be neighborly? Are there people in your life that you go, I'm not really sure who they might be. For whom I might be able to treat them as myself. Back to Leviticus 19. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them even further. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Thus the debate. First, we just had a moment ago in Leviticus. The person whom you should treat as yourself is your own neighbor of your own people. And now it says you've got to treat people who live among you who are foreigners as if they're native born like you are. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord God. Whoa. The progression, just to walk you through it one more time, looks like this. Don't reap to the very edges, a passive kind of kindness people you'll never meet. Don't do anything that endangers your neighbor. I mean, don't overtly do something that's your own people, to your own people. Love your neighbor as yourself, and then love the foreigner as yourself. That is a very generous kind of loving progression. It's one for which we're not super comfortable. Our relationship with people who are not already inside or with us, so to speak, is a really tenuous one. It's a really difficult one to kind of navigate. Jesus will say, even more so in Matthew chapter 5, we'll talk about the idea of not just simply tolerating other people. He'll say, love your enemies. Pray for the people who really do you harm. He keeps pushing it even further. And we go, but wait a second, how far should we push that? It's so uncomfortable because we don't know about these people. Now what Jesus, what the Bible will say, as we love a foreigner as ourselves, as the Bible will say, you were once strangers and you were once foreigners. You've been in the place at some point in your life in which you were on the outside. And you know how it feels to be that person. You want for yourself to be treated as though you are not second class because you're an outsider. You want to be on the inside. You want to be treated as though you belong. That's the relationship we all want for people for whom we don't necessarily belong yet. To say it this way. At our worst, we want for us what we're unwilling to give to others. Welcome me, accept me, allow me to have my process, allow whatever that is, whatever, regardless of my past, my history, whatever that might be, allow me to be here. Allow me to be a part of it. Even though I may not feel welcome, let me, help me feel welcome, even if I don't want to give it to someone else. That's our worst. At our best, we want for others what they may be unwilling or unable to give to us. This, no, look at this, this is, this is where I live most of the time. This is where God is calling me to live. Where I live most of the time is saying, I want to be treated special and unique and I want you to make exceptions for me. But I don't want to have that obligation on me for other people. That's how I want to live. Because that's way easier. And God will say, maybe Jeff, you ought to consider wanting for other people 
wanting, wanting for other people what they may not ever be able to give to you. That's way harder. This past um, couple weeks ago, um, I, uh, there's a, a church, oh, well, some, a group called us. And I said, hey, we want to bring 100 kids to your church. Would that be okay? Sure. That's great. Are you sure it's okay we want to bring 100 first through fourth graders to come to your church on a Sunday? Not a problem. Are you really, yeah, I mean, are we, I don't, do we have a bad connection? It'd be great to have them. And they said, because we've asked, through, you're the third church we've asked, and the other two said, we don't want you to come here. This is a group from a mosque. They wanted to come and learn about Jesus. They wanted to come and see what Jesus was like. And I thought, for the church to say, I don't know who these churches are, but for the church to say, we don't want your curiosity. We don't want you to come and investigate who Jesus is. We want to limit your access to Jesus because we have a handle on it and you might mess it up. And yeah, you're a bunch of six through nine-year-olds, but you never know what you might do here. Unacceptable. So yeah, you guys can come. And they're figuring out when they're going to make it happen. They're not sure. There's some dates they're kind of working around with. And it may not, it may not come to be. But I thought, as a church community, for, people who, for anybody who is curious about Jesus, we have to say, of course. You want to come in and learn about Jesus? With a community of people who I believe to be the most welcoming and inviting community of people I've ever seen? Of course you can come. It doesn't mean that we endorse every single belief in the world or that we subscribe to every single philosophy in the world. That's not at all what that means. It simply says we believe people should have unrestricted access to Jesus and we're going to do whatever we can to make that so. Thank you. I don't have all the answers moving forward in this conversation. I don't. I really don't. But the entire law is fulfilled in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine what a community of people looks like. Who steps into something that's so incredibly scary and frightening to so many people. For whom we say, we don't know how we're supposed to go forward with this, but we're going to start with the idea of loving other people. We don't know how it's all going to go down. We're not sure exactly what it's supposed to mean. We're going to start there. We're not just simply going to tolerate other people. That's the world's ethic. And that's good. It's admirable to a certain extent. But we're going to love other people as ourselves. And we will probably get it wrong. But we're going to keep trying to do that. That's imagine, imagine what the community looks like when that's the reputation of a church. Even if we screw it up. But if we aim at that what that does to a community, to a county, to a country. Let's pray together. Jesus, we have a lot of questions. The way forward in this conversation is not 100% clear. We're grateful that you have received us 
who have been strangers, who have been lost and lonely, who have been on the outsides of things. And you, Jesus, have come to find us and pulled us close to you and brought us into a family of people who love us and speak truth to us. Father, we've been on the outside and we know how that feels. We've been on the inside and we've kept other people on the outside. If only in our thoughts and in our own minds we've said they're not explicitly dangerous, but we're just afraid. Father, would you overwhelm fear with love in our own hearts that we might be people who understand and live in greater and greater capacity to love. I know that there's some of you in here in this room maybe have been the victims of that in an ongoing way. Others of you have just felt far from God and are longing to have that in some way addressed. Would you maybe consider writing a prayer down in the prayer wall, placing it there? Or praying with some of our prayer team who might be able to explain to you, at least in some way or another, expressing to you God's great love for you who wants to welcome you. Jesus, help us to take courageous steps into greater and greater intimacy with you and the freedom that you bring and the love for each other that you have called us to. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Would you hear our words as we sing them? Amen.
again above and below. To Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me, I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His
that. <laughs> As we think about what it looks like to be people who are in the community for the community, if you've been with us, we talk about that all the time. It certainly implies at least that we cannot be in the community for the community and not love the community. All the people that are in it. And all the people that might one day be in it. It's a tough message that I realize is a challenge. Tough for me, too. But God reminds us we were once foreigners and strangers and then he brought us close. And so with that in mind, would you hold out your hands? Would you receive this, the God who comes to get you? Father, you see us before you. Either right now or at some time we have been strangers from you and yet you came to get us. You yourself bore all of the things that would separate us from you, putting them to death, making a way for us to be with you. And Father, you pursue us with an unending kind of love. Father, might at least in some level, at some degree, might we look at the people around us who are strangers from us and might we pursue them at least a little bit with that kind of love. Father, we believe the world will be transformed, not through further separation, but through a greater understanding of love and compassion and truth-telling. So, Father, would that be a little bit more of our future? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So good. So good. Oops. Hey, one last thing. This right here can be yours if you skip your Oscar party and you come to Vision Night tonight. All right? So, but you can't have one if you're not. Don't be a poser and wear this thing around and talk about like you were there. Only if you're here, all right? We'll see you guys tonight, not at your Oscar party. All right, God bless you.